Blueberries in California have grown from 18 million pounds in 2009 to over 70 million projected this year in the face of challenges like water and labor. Investing in food security, climate smart agriculture, the research that can be applied and scaled on a global basis, in addition to understanding the changes that are happening in agriculture and the importance of that research and education title, but we need to have that public investment for public trust in the research results. Today, we sit down with Karen Ross, Secretary of the California Department of Food and Agriculture to talk about her work in ag leadership and the challenges and opportunities that lie ahead. This copyrighted podcast is presented by the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council. The opinions and views shared by those of non-paid guests on the business of blueberries are those of our guests and do not represent the views, positions, or policies of the USHBC. The blueberry industry is like no other, passionate, resilient, and innovative. This podcast is your source for the latest information on the management, markets, research, and technology related to blueberry production. This is the business of blueberries. Here's your host, president of the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council, Casey Cronquist. Welcome back to another episode of The Business of Blueberries, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to the blueberry industry. We are fortunate today to be joined by Karen Ross, Secretary of the Department of Food and Agriculture for California. Secretary Ross was initially appointed to this position by Governor Brown in 2011 and most recently reappointed in 2019 by Governor Gavin Newsom. Before joining CDFA, Secretary Ross was the Chief of Staff for U.S. Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack after serving as President of the California Association of Wine Grape Growers for over 13 years. Secretary Ross has strengthened partnerships across government, academia, and the nonprofit sector in the drive to maintain and improve environmental stewardship and to develop adaption strategies for the specific impacts of climate change. She has initiated programs to provide greater opportunities for farmers and ranchers to engage in sustainable environment stewardship practices through water conservation, energy efficiency, nutrient management, and ecosystem services. And she's also worked to provide greater access to farm fresh foods at school cafeterias through CDFA's Farm to Fork program. She's also been a longtime champion of the specialty crop industry and the California Grown Program and that campaign. So I'm very honored to have her joining with me on today's show. Secretary Ross, welcome to the business of blueberries. Thanks, Casey. It's so good to reconnect with you. And I'm anxious to hear about your new career path and the fun job you have with working with blueberry growers across the nation. Yes, it has been fantastic. And and by way of background and, and making sure people are aware. My tenure in the floral industry had me working very closely with the department, in particular, Secretary Ross. So we may have spent quite a few New Year's together down in Pasadena celebrating the New Year with the Rose Parade and and all those certifications. And it wouldn't have been the same without you helping to really kick off the New Year celebrating California there. Those were good times. <laughs> At the beginning of the year, always a great place to start. And uh, you know, again, I really Thank you always for your commitment to make that happen for those students and for our program and for California Grown. But I did want to talk to you about just kind of how things are going today. I've stepped into this new role at Blueberries, which has me kind of paying attention to the, a lot of different states, a lot of different countries that we work with in terms of blueberry industry. But I wanted to just kind of introduce our audience to you. Obviously, California plays a huge role in the specialty crop industry. And I know you're originally a farm kid from the Midwest, so I just wanted to have our audience get to know you 
maybe tell a little bit about your background and what led you to a career in agriculture. Well, I was born into agriculture and really all through growing up, thought for sure I wanted to get as far away from it as possible. Our farm and my husband and I still own a big portion of that is dry land in the western part of Nebraska, right on the Wyoming border. So it's dry land, feed grains, primarily wheat and feed grains. My brother has done rotational cattle grazing because he does cover cropping and no-till. And so it's a very challenging way of making a living. I might also add it's right in Hale Belt Alley because it's where the eastern kind of humid stuff comes together with the Rocky Mountain climate. And so I grew up too many summers of ready for wheat harvest, and then it's gone in 30 or 35 minutes. That's not a fun way to grow up. And so I really thought there must be better things to do in that small, very rural, sparsely populated area until I worked on a campaign for a friend of mine um, who was friends with the former mayor of Omaha, who decided he was going to run for the U.S. Senate and knew nothing about ag. And uh, Senator Sarinsky ended up being a ranking minority member for the House Agriculture Committee for years and years, and I run his field offices. And that was that connection of policy to something that when I left the farm, I knew how much it meant to me, but I just took a different career path to be a part of agriculture and to be able to stand up for the values of our farming families and to be able to help better connect rural and urban communities, uh, which was one of the things that being president of California Wine Grape Growers allowed me to do very, very well. There's nothing like inviting people to have some really good California-grown food with a really good California wine to really create a conversation and find all those things that we have in common. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, and and I was going to actually maybe spend a little time there on the association side, because you did spend time working with the Wine Grape Association. And you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about what led you to the decision to leave that position for heading out to Washington, D.C. and the position you took there. Yeah. So being president of California Wine Grape Growers has to be one of the more enjoyable jobs in California, not without its challenges, of course, but just really innovative growers, a lot of multi-generational families, like many of our crops in California, and we're lucky to have 400 of them, but the top 80 are the probably the most productive of all of that. And we're able to do some remarkable things. For me, the opportunity to run an association and to really work with each chair and the leadership that gives up volunteer time to come together from their part of the state, but take statewide positions is always an interesting dynamic. One of the things I always wanted to do, I had worked for a United States Senator, and I really wanted to have the chance to serve in an administration, in an agency, to see that side of government. It was a tremendous opportunity. It was a great leap of faith. My husband had spent part of his career in Washington, D.C., but I knew that was something I'd always wanted to do. So we made the move across the country, and we bought a home in Old Town, Alexandria, And it seemed like I barely got there. And then I got the call back to California. But it was such an extraordinary experience. I love the mission of USDA. When you look at USDA and its extensive coverage, 2,200 county offices, they're in over 100 countries with the Foreign Ag Service and APHIS being in those places. It's research, it's rural development, it's protection of animal diseases and invasive pests, it's meat and food safety. And then it's got the whole nutrition work that we do there. It's everything that reflects what government does, but it's very focused on our rural communities. And Secretary Vilsack is such an extraordinary leader. 
and it was during that time we had the very, you know, painful lived experience of a doctored video that led to the firing of a rural development director in Georgia that really was eye-opening for me on inclusiveness and equity and the voices at the table. And for me, a tremendous lesson in leadership. I had so admired Secretary Vilsack, but to have him stand up and talk about the mistake he made and he could never make that up. And it just led to redoubling of all of the efforts to really correct a pretty painful history at USDA and of our country. When we look at the economy that we built and it was on the backs of slavery because we were agrarian, that's where we came from. It's not a judgment, it's an acknowledgement of our history and how we move forward together in a much more inclusive and equitable way. Well, let's take a quick break here for our crop report. The North American season is well underway, and as we get further and further into this summer period, we'll be welcoming more and more regions onto this report. So here, once again, is your Blueberry Crop Report. Yes, it's time for your Blueberry Crop Report, an update on crop conditions and markets from important blueberry growing areas. Today, you'll hear from Rex Schultz in Michigan, Doug Kramer in Oregon, Elizabeth Carranza in California, and Nestor Vega in Mexico. This was recorded on July 13th, 2022. Hi, this is Rex from Michigan with our weekly crop report. We are in a perfect weather pattern right now. We've been uh, just now starting ramping up and uh, we're getting all the crews in the fields. And yesterday was uh, really the first full day that we've had crews out all day long without getting rained out or late starts in the morning. And the labor is very good this year. Uh, We do have a lot of uh, domestic picking this year, but we also have a lot of H2A. So labor force is strong. Our early varieties on Dukes in the southern part of Michigan, we're finishing up on Dukes first round and heading into the second round. And they're just getting started up in the northern counties with the Dukes up there. The Duke picking is light. Uh, There were some pollination issues, so we're not going to have a large, large volume on the early varieties. But the blue crop mid-season berries look real good. They look to be strong. And I think we're going to have some good volumes. We got all the retailers wanting more. and We just can't get them into our packing plants quick enough. We uh, are looking for a great late season. Volumes that are being shipped right now are very light. But I expect next week that we'll be really ramping up and, and we'll see some large numbers going out of Michigan. And uh, we're just looking for a great season. I think we're on target to gain a little bit more than last year, not a bumper crop, but I think we'll be up over last season. So we're going to be right around that 80 to 84 million pounds probably for Michigan. And with that, that's our crop report for this week. Well, I'm Doug Kramer. I'm from Oregon, and this is our first uh, report of this season. There's growers that have started picking this week. And we are one of those growers. The fruit's coming off good. We're picking Duke, which is our early variety. And we're about halfway through it at this point. We got a long way to go, but you can't get to the end if you don't get started. So we're on our way. The weather's been pretty good for us. We've had a very mild spring and that it was actually on the cold and wet side struggled a little bit with pollination but 
we're through that now and we're having highs in the 80s and lows in the 50s. So perfect weather for blueberry ripening and harvesting. And it looks like we'll uh, go as long as we normally do, which is sometime into September or the 1st of October. So that's my report for this week. Thank you. Hi, good morning. This is Elizabeth Carranza with the California Blueberry Commission. Um, we are pretty much done here for the year in California. In terms of our volume, uh, we expect there to be some trickling in over the next couple of weeks, but we will likely end up somewhere around 50 million pounds total fresh, probably looking at about 60 million total, including process for the season here in California. But yeah, we're pretty much done for the year, so not much else to report here out of California. Hi, I'm Nestor Vega from, from Mexico. This week, Mexico exported a total of 300,000 pounds to the United States and 881 pounds of fresh blueberry to the world. From this volume, 20,000 pounds uh, was organic blueberry, but it's 60.67% uh, of the total volume. In frozen, uh, Mexico exported 71,000 200 pounds, representing 3.24% of the market, U.S. market of frozen on week 27. And for the full season, Mexico has exported 20% higher than the last season to date. And that was the report for Mexico. Well, thanks so much to our busy growers and colleagues who take time to participate in these reports. As a reminder, you can go to the new USHBC website where you'll find our data and insight center to see more data of what's happening in the blueberry industry. We've added a lot more features to this dashboard, including USDA shipping price and movement, retail category performance, Nielsen monthly retail sales reports, and much, much more. So make sure you go to ushbc.org forward slash data to check that out. Now let's get back to our featured conversation with Secretary Karen Ross. Secretary Ross, I want to kind of come back to maybe more of this conversation about you and your state. You, like we described, represent the largest state of specialty crops in the United States with over 400 specialty crops. That includes livestock. You talked about dairy. That includes rice. I mean, I think there's a lot of things about California for our audience that they may not realize we represent, but more importantly, just how big California agriculture is than I think most people realize. But maybe you could give our audience a brief state of the state of California agriculture from your perspective. Yeah. Well, let's start with the word challenge because it is so challenged right now. As I stated earlier in some of my comments, we've got 400 commodities, but there's about 80 of them that really make up the vast majority of our irrigated land mass. We've got a total of 25 million acres in agriculture, but the vast majority of that is rangeland. And that's why our cattle sector is so important for us, you know. People who drive the state can really appreciate the, the rangeland management that those people bring to us. And cattle and calves are our fifth most valuable commodity. So we've got dairy number one, cattle and calves as number five, and everything in between is really those specialty crops. So a lot of tree nuts, almonds, pistachios, and walnuts make up part of our top 10 vineyards. Of course, grapes go back and forth with almonds as either second or third largest, and that's all grapes, table grapes, wine grapes, juice grapes. And raisin grapes, we still make those delicious raisins out here. And then we've got berry crops. 
which are driven, you know, blueberries keep growing, although we also know a lot of them are also being grown in different countries because of that desire of our consumers for year-round supply. And one of our biggest challenges, cost of production issues, which I do want to touch on. And then we've got, you know, our leafy greens and all of those wonderful vegetables. I mean, I tell everybody, we are the healthy, beautiful, exciting, tasteful part of the dinner plate. And we have rice. Our rice is majority of the sushi rice that we produce in this country. So it's very unique. And that's been one of the devastating parts of this drought that we're suffering right now, which is climate induced, is that our Central Valley historically is where we suffer the most fallowed acres because of drought issues. And this year, for the first time in history, senior water rights holders in the Sacramento River Valley, which is the northern part of the state, will probably fallow up to 250,000 acres of rice. That's never happened before. When we combine that with a corner of our state that often gets overlooked, Imperial County, which is home to, with Yuma County in Arizona, about 90% of our winter vegetables and leafy greens in the wintertime. And with what's happening with the Colorado River and Lake Mead, those people just got the announcement last week about as much as 40% reductions in delivery of water to senior water rights holders. This is a part of our changing climate and what's happening throughout the West, that it's important for us to invest in resiliency, water use efficiency, and understand that following in our rural communities that are so dependent upon ag as the driver of those economies, understanding what those community impacts are going to be and how we provide some resiliency in our rural communities is really going to be key to how we all work together to not perpetuate a cycle of poverty when we have droughts, but that we found ways of adding value to our crops, creating some additional revenue generators to keep our rural communities healthy and thriving so our young people will want to come back, right? Yeah. And I think this is, it certainly is a, maybe a multi-generational challenge of knowing when there are these environmental conditions that create droughts that obviously in this case we're experiencing in a major way for California. But there's also this balance and I, we could spend a lot of time here on just the water issue in California from your perspective. But I think people look at California to see how California is handling these types of circumstances. It's not just going to be unique to California. Um, but where do you find that balance between the agriculture, the urban and the environmental water needs for the future? Yeah, I will use an example of a project that the state put some seed money into last year. It's been community driven. It's been very inclusive because it's centered on equity and adding value based on what we do best in the eight counties in the Central Valley, and that is agriculture. But how much of it are we shipping out without adding value through processing within the Central Valley? How much in the entire supply chain, when we think about the specialized equipment and the new technologies that are making us even more efficient and improving our quality, could we be the manufacturer of all that automated technology that's going to come to our farms and to our processing plants? Add that value in the Central Valley because we already are leaders in some of the new high-tech custom manufacturing opportunities. So really, it's called the Fresno Merced Future of Food Innovation Initiative that brings all of that together. It's got a strong plank for food entrepreneurs and very small growers to really take advantage of our farm to school and more direct selling to institutions within the Valley. It's adding value to the food processing 
And it's really looking at automation and technology and the application. Can we create it in the Valley and export it globally? Because we have small and large farmers and the world's vast majority of farmers are very small. So if we can come up with those solutions, they could be applicable on a global basis. The California legislature agreed with the governor last year and invested $30 million in that initiative. And it was one of 60 finalists nationally through some of the Build Back Better funding that's available at the Economic Development Administration. They put in a $100 million proposal. It's an amazing proposal that brings all these things together. That's happening across many rural communities, but that's kind of thinking that we need to have. It's more inclusive. It brings the whole community together and it's focused on equity. We don't want to just keep creating economies that leave people out, especially when we look at our aging farm worker workforce, how we attract new employees that want to be excited about working in ag. And I think the technology piece is going to be part of that. Well, and in a way, you're incubating these ideas for others to see, as we've described, in other regions, other states, other parts of the world. And, and a large part of where I saw some good incubation of programs that could bring multi-states together, but in particular, you know, when I was working with you there in California was the specialty crop block grants that would allow us to try to model out things that we could try that we thought were going to be really important for market development and those types of things. And there is a new farm bill coming where we are looking at these types of things anew and trying to determine. And, you know, I can't say enough good things about what I think we appreciated and enjoyed about participating in that process as part of the floral industry. But as you look at that new farm bill coming, you know, and what would look different than previous farm bills, you know, we're certainly going to be advocating for the continuation of those funds for specialty crops. But what opportunities do you see for groups like ours to weigh in on the new farm bill? You know, my understanding is probably not going to be an increase of resources to the farm bill, um, but making sure that certain funding stays in there or that in our case, we touched a little bit on labor, but where our farms can remain more competitive in the future, thanks to the farm bill going forward, than we otherwise would. What, what intersection of opportunity do you see there for us in agriculture? But if you could speak to blueberries specifically, that would be great. Sure. As well. well, first, I'm going to say that we've never in my lifetime had the severity of a crisis of food security that we're seeing now. Obviously, the war in Ukraine is a driver of that the poverty and the extreme weather events that have disrupted supply chains in Africa, the extreme heat that we're seeing in India, in Southeast Asia. So I think that to say, well, this is the money we have to work with is a mistake. I think that investing in food security, climate smart agriculture, the research that can be applied and scaled on a global basis in addition to understanding the changes that are happening in agriculture and the importance of that research and education title to make sure we're focused on the workforce of the future, the jobs of the future, the training of the future, that research has driven so many of the ways we've been as efficient at the production systems that we are, but we need to have that public investment for public trust in the research results. And the advancements of science and technology are going to be key to that. That's starting with plant breeding, you know, we want blueberries to thrive even in a changing climate where, where we are or to better know what it will take for that. So let's not start with bargaining against ourselves on the same amount of money because there will be the shifting of we should put more money in the conservation title. And we should if, in fact, that will improve our resiliency, if, in fact, that will help drive the marketplace 
to understand that we have been absorbing the monetary benefits of what we produce so that we're starting to see more of a market recognition and investment and reward for those practices. When I think about what has happened with supply chains and not being able to ship product out, even when there is demand, what are we going to do to help us recover from lost markets so that they're only temporary? I mean, MAP program has done tremendous things for us. And I know we're caught in this warp of we shouldn't be shipping things offshore, but we have a global food security issue. And we want to make sure that nutrition is not lost in just shipping calories overseas. So, you know, those are the types of programs I think about to make sure that there's a funding stream to help us meet local demand and fulfill what a farmer feels very strongly every day their responsibility to improving food access and nutrition for citizens, regardless of where they live. So I just want to put those plugs in for that. Now, let me focus in on the horticulture title, specialty clap block grant program, an ever-increasing coalition of people, very effective advocates on behalf of specialty crops. It's going to take that and more of all of us working together. You know, we've proven that block grants to the states can work. They can be more responsive to local issues and adding that what we did, was it two farm bills ago? Because the first round wasn't as effective on the multi-state program, but we can continue to improve that because we have proven that that brings people together within a commodity to do some things that otherwise might not get through the system. So I would hope we've shown a track record of being able to grow that program. Now, one of the issues we're going to have, there are crops that want to be included that come up repeatedly. And that's going to be one of the tension points, I think, in the horticulture title and the specialty crop block grant program and the specialty crop research initiative. Those are things that I'm very keen on watching what's going on with those types of things. And then I never want to diminish the importance of rural development when it comes to processing and value added opportunities for individual businesses, as well as, you know, community-driven opportunities to add value in that rural community and making sure that we're investing in those opportunities for small and mid-size. Because I would guess a lot of your growers, when we look at average acreage, that's a sweet spot for us all to really focus on. How do we maintain opportunities for small family-owned businesses? We're going to take a quick break here for our Blueberry Boost. We'll be right back to this conversation in a moment. But for now, here's USHBC NABC Vice President of Engagement and Education, Amanda Griffin. Thanks, Casey. For this week's Blueberry Boost, let's talk about the Blueberry Summit this fall in Nashville, Tennessee. A reminder that we will be taking over the Music City Wednesday, October 5th through Friday, October 7th. The week will have inspiring keynotes, business solutions through interactive exhibits, and networking opportunities at receptions and the NABC USHBC dinner. Just added to the registration site are the tickets to the Grand Ole Opry show and backstage tour for that Friday night. Make sure to secure that ticket soon as we have limited tickets and they are going fast. In keeping with the theme of Nashville and the Music City, we promoted if you registered for the summit by the start of National Blueberry Month, which for those that know is right now the month of July, you would be entered into a drawing for a brand new pair of blueberry cowboy boots. 
Many of you quickly got your registrations in, and we are happy to report that Brian Sakuma is our grand prize winner of the official Blueberry Boots. We can't wait to see him walking around the Blueberry Summit in them. While we are in the business of giveaways, our next exciting promotion is if you register by the end of July, again, National Blueberry Month, you will be entered in to win a blueberry cowboy hat. So make sure to secure your seat today, not just to be entered in for the official blueberry cowboy hat, but also you won't want to miss this signature blueberry experience. Visit us at blueberryevents.org for more details and to register now. You will also find more information on how to connect with our passionate Blueberry community through the exhibitor and sponsor opportunities. This has been your weekly Blueberry Boost. Now, Casey, back to you. Thanks, Amanda. Now back to today's episode with CDFA Secretary Karen Ross. You know, one of the things that, you know, we might recognize about the conversation today with you, but in particular, as kind of we wind up our conversation is just your role in leadership in agriculture, which I have admired for many years. And, you know, leadership in the role that you play today and the path that you've taken to become the leader you are in in California agriculture today. I just got back from our kickoff of an inaugural leadership program for blueberries. And I'm really passionate about that because I think it takes these intersections of these kinds of big picture conversations, thinking outside of maybe your farm, your business, your world, your community, and, and considering you know, all the ways that there are opportunities to influence change. And you've certainly been a big part of the change we've seen in California agriculture, the positions you've served in, buying grape industry. But looking at agriculture more generally, what what can we do to better develop the leadership potential of our people in our industry? Because in the end, as you described, it is that group coming together that's so important. And, and what could we be doing to invest in that future, you know, from your perspective? Well, good for you and your board for making this kind of investment because that is a huge step forward. I was very fortunate right before my husband took a job in California. I graduated from the Nebraska Ag Leadership Program that really, you know, furthered my my passion for what I'd already started to feel. Um, and I was very lucky to be welcomed by Ag Leadership here, and that's where I spent a lot of my early career. The world has changed and will continue changing even faster than it already has. It's bringing those multi-perspectives together. It's very easy for us to get together on a, like, this is the commission and this is how we do things. And we're all speaking the same language and this is the way we do things. We can't afford to do that anymore, you know, and and I'm not going to speak about society at large. You know, in the state of California, we have 40 million people. We have 69,600 farms and probably the next census will be less. And we have to recognize that we have to build bridges and that, that people are not all against us, focus on the commonalities. And we have to think like we do on our farm. Farming is a systems approach. It's not one thing. Everything's interconnected. And we have to bring that multidimensional work, whether it's to our, our scientific solutions nowadays need to have multiple dimensions. We have to engage with people who have a slightly different perspective or major different perspective to understand what's really driving all of the change that I'm feeling. And then you can see a pathway of how we engage in a way that might be more effective, that really invites people in with us on the really tremendous challenges we're trying to solve, but understanding how that impacts and intersects with their life. And finding those kinds of connections, those kinds of 
who else should I be looking at? I still remember when I just wanted to stop fighting environmental wars about vineyards on the coast with environmentalists with headlines in the newspaper. I wanted to get in a room and have the conversation. And it was amazing what came out of that. So investing in our leadership and letting people who think they're not a leader, but they're a very important part of that conversation that they are invited to come in and do this, understanding that especially in ag, people are so busy doing the farming, making the day-to-day decisions, the stress of that. How do we create a space for people at that way to come into this too? Can we shift some of our board meetings to evening and late afternoon where maybe some of the small farmers could participate? How do we ensure that farmers of color know that they can have a voice in making the decisions that will impact consumers that might not normally look at blueberries as their food? I mean, I don't know those things, Casey, but I think we have to be much more holistic in looking at that and much more intentional in inviting those people and finding ways for them to participate. But every commodity should do this. But don't just focus on the commodity issues specific to that. We need that bigger picture. I know the issues right now with retailers and pricing and all of that, but how could we be part of this industry for not engaging in conversations and inviting retailers to understand our world as we understand theirs? You know, that kind of thing is really, I think, what leads us to better long-term solutions. Well, as I said, I, I have appreciated your leadership and uh, certainly the work I've been able to do with you in my tenure in California and look forward to, you know, continue to work with you and your administration as we go forward from here. We'll talk a lot about the growth of the blueberry industry in California as part of this episode, but really appreciate your time today and your thoughts on the future ahead and your relationship to leadership and what that means for people who are listening today that are aspiring for those opportunities. Uh, The encouragement that I know you've always brought as an ambassador for agriculture and obviously a great ambassador for California. So thank you for being on the show today. Casey, can I just say I have missed you and your leadership and your enthusiasm, but I'm glad to know what you're doing. I hope the blueberry growers across this nation know how fortunate they are to have you at the helm. Well, again, that was a great conversation with Secretary Ross. You know, I think it can't be overstated just understanding the size and scale and scope of the things that she's responsible for as the Ag Secretary for California. You got 40 million people in the state. And she said, you know, somewhere around 69,000 farms in the state of California, which, you know, really is quite a large community of farms. And then as you heard, is kind of a theme throughout our conversation today about what it takes to find that common ground both in policy, regulation. I mean, it's a lot of work for a state that size with that many people and that many stakeholders. Obviously, the consumers are involved with that that take place in her responsibility on a day-to-day. So just having the time with her was a true pleasure to just take this unique opportunity. I'd love to do this with more state ag you know, leaders. And so if, uh, other states are listening and would like to have us bring their ag secretary or ag leadership onto a call for the business of blueberries. I'd love to do more of these kinds of touch base because you, what you really get is a perspective from them on what they see as important. And we talked a bit about the farm bill. So you got to hear from Secretary Ross herself about where she sees that farm bill going, where the resources and specialty crops fit in and things that we should be looking at. And so uh, it's a good conversation that I think people are having about how to eat well, uh, the nutritional benefits that come from eating fresh, eating healthy food, and the market opportunities that means for commodities like blueberries. And so I just think this is not a trend that's going to go away. This is going to continue to find itself in, in conversations with leadership like Secretary Ross today. So 
Again, that's it for episode 105. A great conversation. I really appreciated the time with the secretary and I really appreciate you for listening. So thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more innovation, collaboration, family, and hard work right here on the Business of Blueberries. 